Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated at the Digital Government Institute's 930 Gov event. My guests on the panel were Dorothy Aronson, the CIO of the National Science Foundation, and Gary Bartlett, the CIO of the Postal Services Inspector General's Office. NSF is an anomaly, I think, among federal agencies. Uh, it We're small, uh, single mission agency, one location. And so for us, we uh, act like a Petri dish for the larger organizations. So you can try something quickly at NSF and, and have it go agency-wide almost instantly, whereas you know, comparing that to a larger agency, it's much harder. So we started modernizing our IT infrastructure and our IT systems you know, seven years ago. So we don't have the same kind of legacy architecture and infrastructure that other organizations have, thank heaven. And what we do, though, is always try to be reaching beyond the current. So we've done some experiments over the past couple of years that have enabled us to implement artificial intelligence, uh, bots, things like that, into our primary business systems at the National Science Foundation. And I'm going to start by saying the main thing I learned was that uh, IT is not the place to start. The, the place to start is with a problem. What is your agency's biggest problem? What problem do you want to solve? And the reason for that is that, and then you apply IT if, it's, if it will help you get through the problem. So let me explain why that's important. One of the things Jason was saying was people first. We recently did an experiment where we had a, a, a bit of artificial, a problem to solve. We knew that we had some technology. The technology was easy. It was about, it was about using data. We had the data. We had the technology. It was about using data to help program officers make decisions. And what it was, what it was doing at the National Science Foundation, what we do is we fund good ideas. So ideas come in in large, in large doses, and we sift through them, and we have panels of, of experts who review them. And the hard, one of the hard things that we have to do is find panelists who have expertise in the science. Well, in the olden days, science was either physics or chemistry or biology. Now these things mix together. So you need, you know, a good idea will come in, and it will be a mix of psychology and IT. Um, and so to find people who are expert in those mixed, uh, we call that convergent science, it's not easy. You can't just go to the, you know, the biology department or the IT department and get someone who can review that kind of idea. So what we've done is we've created uh, a tool that they can use, that the program officers can use that find people that have the right mix of technology skills to sit on these panels. And so that's what we used artificial intelligence to do. And what, what we saw was that uh, we had the technology, we had the data, all we had to do was put them together, but we had to also get the people to adopt the use of the tool. And that was easier than the third piece, which was what happens if there are people whose whole jobs it is to find people for these panels? You know, what happens to those people if we can automate that decision quickly? So I made a commitment then that the project wouldn't be over until we solved that last bit of the problem. So putting, we put out the tool, we got the adoption from the people who could use it, but, but solving the problem of what to do with the people that were left behind was very difficult. So from that point on, I decided that we would never have a project that didn't include resolving the people problem, the whole people problem, before we started. So 
that expands the amount of complexity to such a great extent that you have to actually start by looking at the, you know, so you find a big problem that you want to solve, but you also at the same time have to be thinking of the whole ecosystem of people using that would be impacted by that from the very beginning. So, and the bottom line on this, so just being selfish, why is this important? If in the end people are left behind or people are threatened, they will not help. They won't help you get to the new, better future if they uh, want to stay in the present. So it's about IT innovation, in my mind, is about setting the vision of all of the people so that they will help you. Imagine, how would you, how would you implement a bot, uh, a person's expert at doing a manual job, but you, want, you, can, you believe that a bot could do that job, but without the person wanting to help you, how do you do that? So that's my main um, learning. I have a lot of other technical stuff, too, if you want to ask questions about that later. Well, but I'm going will. to turn this back. We will. Oh, okay. But I'm going to ask a question first. Okay, good. All right. So as you, as you worked with the, the people, first of all, roughly how many people did this affect? Was it 10? Was it 50? Well, NSF is about uh, 2,000 people all, overall. So the people, I would say there were about 50 people that – there were maybe 100 people that used the tool or 200 that used the tool. And there were about – 50 others who lost work capacity as a result of that. And then... And I'm guessing. These are just round numbers. There are people, and we've seen this, and we can compare it to, let's say, data center modernization. People want to watch the blinking lights. They want to be server huggers, we call them, right? Right, right. Were they they panel huggers? Did you have to be like, you're going to pry this panel out of my dead hands type of Uh, thing here? No. I think that for the most part, the things that... People would say, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, and so freeing up that time they would see as a benefit. So it wasn't a big risk in the beginning. But it also, what I had hoped would happen would be that those people would take that energy that they were putting into that effort. It didn't eliminate any jobs entirely, so it only freed up some time. And so my hope was that that time would be spent leaning forward, uh, reaching, reaching forward for something new. And I, th- I think that's the key. I mean, if they can see what that future is, which goes back to your piece about understanding the vision and sharing that vision probably, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to do this anymore. I can do those other things. I mean, right. And that actually brings me around to this, the next question I just wanted to ask you real quick, the RPA stuff. Can right. you walk us through a little bit of, of is that same same challenges? Sure. So with RPA, it's actually a little bit easier than it was with AI. So the specific thing with RPA, I don't know if you guys – are, you know, where you're from in the world, but the finance group brought RPA in with a lot of energy. So they wanted, they're doing manual data entry, moving data from one system to another system. They have emails that are highly formatted. So they had a lot of opportunity in the, in the RPA arena. RPA, uh, robotic process automation. And um, the thing you create with RPA is called a bot, just so we are clear. So what happened was the financial group was, uh, was excited about this. So the IT people, the CIO, me, supported their uh, energy. And we brought in the most easy-to-use bot tool. So we, we did an evaluation of various tools. And we wanted my vision for uh, bot tools is that they're like Excel in the future. So what I mean by that is that everybody has the bot tool sitting on their desk. It's one of their office products. And when they find that they're doing something that they don't like to do and it's repetitive and boring, they, they go to their bot tool and they turn it on to do it. The same way now everybody might, many people would use Excel to do their work. So what we offered with bots was you were doing a manual effort before 
Now there's a bot tool, so I want you to spend some time learning this, either learning what the bot tool, how the bot tool works itself, so you could be a bot creator, but also the other alternative is just learning how to look at your work in such a way that you can then discard it. So people don't necessarily evaluate their, their workload as, well, this is something I can automate. But So you have to learn something in order to be applying that kind of logic to your work. We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the Digital Government Institute's 930 Gov event. My guests on the panel were Dorothy Aronson, the CIO of the National Science Foundation, and Gary Bartlett, the CIO of the Postal Service's Inspector General's Office. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the Digital Government Institute's 930 Gov event. My guests on the panel were Dorothy Aronson, the CIO of the National Science Foundation, and Gary Bartlett, the CIO of the Postal Service's Inspector General's Office. We are primarily an audit and uh, investigation agency. Uh, so a lot of our efforts in modernization have been focused on our auditors and our investigators. About 500-plus auditors, about 300-plus, I'm sorry, 500-plus investigators, 300-plus auditors. So a lot of our modernization efforts have been focused on that. We just, uh, about a year ago, uh, completely uh, rewrote the case management system that our investigators use. Put in a lot of new modern technologies into the case management system that the auditor or that the investigators were looking for. Try to make their job a little bit easier. Uh, put in context, because we oversee the Postal Service, Federally, we're one of the largest OIG offices when you compare us to other OIG offices. But because of the agency that we oversee, you know, over over half a million employees in the Postal Service, uh, on a per-person basis, we're actually one of the smallest OIGs. Uh, so technology is very important in us uh, conducting our oversight responsibilities for the Postal Service. Uh, we did, we're in the process of uh, doing the same thing for the auditors, modernizing some of their uh, uh, audit systems that they're using. One of the big things that we're launching right now is uh, the use of artificial intelligence. So we're just finally getting into the, the realm of artificial intelligence. We've got a couple of projects underway. One of the ones that the uh, investigators are most excited about is uh, they do a lot of surveillance. So they have surveillance cameras that they post. They record a lot of video. So they'll record weeks of video. Uh, and then it, the lucky investigator gets to sit down and fast forward through the video looking for the things that they're looking for. A lot of dead space in those videos. And they sit there and they fast forward through this video and they look for Someone coming through a back door of a postal facility, someone dropping their hand below, below a counter because they're slipping money into their pocket. You know, those types of activities that, that they have to watch for in this, in this volume of, of uh, video. So now we're starting to look at applying artificial intelligence to watch that video for the agent and try to highlight those activities that they normally would be watching themselves. And obviously the artificial intelligence engine is going to do it a lot faster and it's going to free that investigator up to go do other things and not have to be sitting at a desk at a computer fast forwarding through all this video. So that's one of the big things that we're right in the middle of right now. The investigators are very excited about it. Uh, we kind of teased them a little bit with, uh, with the way some of the RPA things that, that you, uh, you were just talking about. As part of their case management system, we just uh, gave them a capability. So it's amazing. They do a case. They get ready to take it to prosecution. They produce what's called an ROI, which is a report of investigation. Uh, and it's all the artifacts and the evidentiary things that they have. Uh, when they print it out, for most cases, it's usually in a, in a folder about that. So a lot of times they'll have, they'll have uh, received documentation. they got to put it all in order. They have to have a table of contents, and they used to all be done manually by them. And they would literally stand at it, and they, would, they have to put it all into a single file uh, to give to the DAs, to, or to the uh, uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. So what that used to entail is them standing in front of a copy machine, feeding one page at a time, and scanning it in. 
until it all got scanned into one giant PDF that they could then hand over to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And anybody's ever scanned anything, they know one paper, you're one paper jam away from getting to start over. Uh, and there, there'd be a lot of cursing uh, heard in the, in the building uh, as they had to start over on their process. So we took that away from them. We completely automated it. We used uh, some cloud-based technology that takes all their artifacts. They organize it the, the, the way that they want to organize it. And then it, it goes off into a, a web-based service and spits out a, an ROI for them in about 10 minutes. So they were ecstatic about that. So now that we promised them that, hey, we can do for that, for what we did for your ROI, we can now potentially do for your video surveillance and the way that you, the amount of time you spend uh, doing video surveillance. Uh, so that's now they're knocking on my door wondering when I'm going to be done with that project. So talk about getting the, the, the users, you know, bought into this. That's how you get users bought in is find something they hate doing and automate it. So that's, that's, that's our mantra is find what they don't like doing and automate it, automate it out of them and let them focus on the things they, they, they enjoy doing. All right, so uh, I want to come to the audience questions, but a couple things, Gary. Let me let me start with some some basics. So, the the use of RPA, and and as you kind of, was that a wow moment moment for the the IG's office? Like, did you go, oh, we could do that, or like, how did it come together? Because the user right just wants to stop doing that work, right? And they'll do you know almost anything to stop doing the work. Yeah. So from so from our side, from the CIO shop, it was things that we knew that we wanted to do and had been watching the technology kind of mature, you know, over years. Uh, but there are a lot of foundational things you got to get and put in place, right? If you don't have a good foundation for your systems, for your infrastructure, for your data, if you jump too far ahead and you try to do something, it's going to fail. Uh, so that was the first thing we spent the last couple of years really trying to get the the infrastructure, the data governance, those kinds of things in place that would allow us to do those kinds of things. And then it was a matter of selling it to, uh, to executives uh, to get funding for this, you know, because I don't have that kind of stuff baked into my budget when I start doing these projects. Uh, I got to go secure funding. And so I, I get to go to an investment review uh, board with the other executives. You know, it's funny. The first time you say the, the, the words artificial intelligence, they look at you and they're like, oh, really? You know, this is, this is, you know, science fiction kind of stuff. And you have to really explain to them that it's a lot more mainstream uh, than they realize it is. And this is not some some fanciful thing you're going off chasing that it's actually practical applicable things that you can actually produce and when you have that conversation i think and i think that's really important and dorothy if you want to weigh in on this discussion too you're selling the business right. side you're not selling well hey i got this tool and i put this algorithm in and i hook up to the cloud and the yeah. they, they want to know what, what what's this going to save me what's this going to mean for my business i mean is that's that and that's a change we've seen at cios as well when we talk about it modernization you can't go in and be like the WYSIWYG thing, right. Bob is really great. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I've really been coaching my team on is to not say the name of products because it's not about the product. It's about the delivery of capability for the customers and really talking about what you're going to do for the customer. So when I walk in the door and start talking about taking away you know, the, an investigator having to sit at a table uh, at a computer watching video, uh, hey, taking away work from an auditor to not necessarily have to manually scan in things and look for you know, look for data elements in, in a stack of paperwork. You know, that's the way that to sell it is as from the business side. I don't talk that technology with them at all. It's all about what's your problem and this is how, you know, these are the things I can do to solve that problem and here's what the, the world's going to look like for you in the future. So I can say with respect to budget, what we've done, first off, there's a huge demand. There's an insatiable desire at the National Science Foundation to have new technologies. So it's not, I don't, what we do, uh, the federal budget cycle is every, right now, for example, we're looking two years ahead into 21 and trying to figure out how much we'll need for that year. And what we've done is we've left it a bit loose. So I'm really sorry that the IG is here. 
But it's not your IG. It's okay. 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 So what we do is we ask for general. We ask for funds two years in advance, but we don't specify exactly how we're going to use them. What I mean by that is we don't talk about the technology. We say we're going to solve this kind of. We're going to solve. We're going to work to solve this type of business problem in the future in 21. And then we list five things. When 21 comes, the business problem we're trying to solve might be one of those five or might just be like one of those five. So what we've done is we've gotten into this agile budgeting um, posture so that we don't have to ask for things as we go. And what happens was, not our IG, because IG is in our organization is a separate organization, but the rest of the organization, as, uh, as things evolve, they just come to me and, or the, you know, our governance group and say, we have something we'd like to try, and if the governance group if we can find a, a way of slipping it in, we do that. And we don't have to go asking for money. Right, questions from the audience. Hello, I'm Christina. One of the things that you said was like a selling point in regards to like IT modernization is like a manual task. And, and if somebody doesn't want to do that anymore, basically having that as your selling point. What if it's a task that people actually enjoy doing? And you're trying to sell to them that we're going to take that away from them. How do you manage change there? I would choose a different task. <laughs> I, I would. I would say, but I mean, eventually that person, if this is just my view, you know, people have to not fear technology and they have to want to come to work and participate. And so I really would look elsewhere. That's not, so to me, that's not a ripe, uh, a ripe situation for automation. If someone were to come down from the top, which I pose that notion as well. I mean, I think it has to be a ground. I think there's enough uh, fertile ground at the, that people want to automate at this point that that's where I would start. If somebody comes from the top and says, you have to automate this, then I would figure out, then I would take the person who loves that job and find out what, uh, what do you love about this job? What are the things? Because one way I describe this is I say, at the turn of the 19th century, people used to bring, there was a guy who probably used to bring ice to uh, houses and put them in ice boxes, right? The ice guy. And then refrigerators came along, and that ice man could no longer be the ice man. So maybe he became the refrigerator repairman. And then, of course, now we don't, our refrigerators repair themselves or they become trash as soon as they're broken. Um, and so there's no need for an, uh, a, a refrigerator repairman. But maybe that guy is now a yoga instructor. Well, and the reason that's important is because time, as times change, really what's, what's great and important about human beings has to be integrated into our plans for the future. And so if this person loves doing data entry right now, good. But it's important also to say to them, imagine five years from now, what, what do you think you want to be doing then? Because it takes people time to make the psychological adjustment to that, to that point. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. I would not, definitely wouldn't start with that t by choice, right? I would not start with that task. I mean, you, you look for people that are doing things that they really don't want to do because they're the ones that will be most vested in helping you make that change. But if you get directed to, that this is a task that, that, you know, from on high that, that someone wants you to focus on, you know, I've, I've personally pulled people aside when we've, when we've uh, had to do some of this stuff and, and have that conversation about what, what do you really like to do? What would you like to do different? You know, just think about that. Just imagine if all of a sudden, you know, half of your day you freed up and you can actually focus on something else. What other tasks would you like to do uh, that you actually might enjoy more? Uh, once you get past the, the kind of the scary part of the change, right? Because it's always the change that scares everybody, really, when it boils down to it. Uh, so just having that conversation. Uh, sometimes that conversation works out great. Sometimes it doesn't. You can only manage what you can manage, right, at the end of the day. 
There's one other part to that. I know you, but well, we've identified different kinds of people. So there's, there's pioneers. They're people who are out ahead of the IT shop. They're just dying for change, and they're going to go it and do it themselves whether you help them or not. And then they're early adopters. They're the people who take this stuff. The pioneers have, have uh, try, they're willing to try something that's a little bit risky. Um, and the, so the, the early adopters will take the pioneers' work and try and make it into something that's agency-wide. And then there's people who don't care one way or the other. And then finally, there's laggards. And you have to identify, at least with our projects, we always identify who are these, which people fall into these different categories because we have a marketing strategy if, that, if that's the right term, for each of the groups, and they're different. We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the Digital Government Institute's 930 Gov event. My guests on the panel were Dorothy Aronson, the CIO of the National Science Foundation, and Gary Bartlett, the CIO of the Postal Service's Inspector General's Office. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the Digital Government Institute's 930 Gov event. My guests on the panel were Dorothy Aronson, the CIO of the National Science Foundation, and Gary Bartlett, the CIO of the Postal Service's Inspector General's Office. In this segment of the show, the panelists take questions from the audience. Uh, hi, I'm Carol Brumfield. I work at the USPTO. I'm your neighbor down in Alexandria. Yes, I recognize you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And um, I have a couple of questions. Uh, First of all, um, with all the rules and regulations in the federal budget cycle, uh, with OMB budget, President's budget, this and that, how do we get an agile budgeting process? And number two, what is a chief data officer, and do we need one, and why why would we need one at PTO? Budget one, I'm going to jump in here. They're not budget people. (laughs) They're the CIO people, and they live within... They live in the system. So you can answer the budget question, but I'll give you the out. And Dorothy can tell you all about the CDO and why you need one. Yeah, so from a, from a budget perspective, some of that change is hard, right? Because, you know, as mentioned, right, you've got a lot of rules and regulations you've got to follow. But it's really some, some of that is just the internal mindset of where you're getting your agency to understand different ways of identifying money and how you're going to spend that money and when you're going to spend it, right? And it's really a, more of a mindset change really than it is a a procedural or process change. It's, it's really getting that mindset change where you talk about, you know, as, as was referenced, you don't necessarily know today that, you know, two years from now, I'm going to buy X at the start of that budget process. Because in IT, it's, that's impossible, right? For anybody that thinks that they know now, two, three years from now, what IT they're going to buy, that's insane. We don't, we don't know that. You know, we can, we can forecast as much as we want. Once you get the leadership of the agency to understand, hey, we just want to carve out kind of a pot of money uh, for IT kind of projects, for, for business-related kind of projects, that's, that's really what you got to do. It's about changing that mindset of not telling two, three years in, a, in advance, I'm going to buy this piece of software because you just can't do that But anymore. you know what IGs call that? Oh, I know what IGs call it. Slush fund. Yeah. <laughs> don't do that. So I don't need an out on this because I, I do want to talk about this for just one second. I think the important thing is, is to not be the IT person in the room leading the decision making. There you go. What we have is a very clear governance process. So I'm sort of the facilitator of a governance process that engages people from throughout the agency to advocate for me. Um, and that's really what did it. The process is documented. It's repeated year after year. And in the beginning, I like to be as transparent as I possibly can be, which also brings on criticism. I mean, because people are used to hiding things. But if you say, I have no intention of hiding things, I'm going to show you everything I have, but I need your help deciding where it goes, that's really the crux of it. And then you have to live up to that. You have to, you have to 
count the pennies. You have to show people where the money is going. But then it doesn't, it's not my money. It's the agency's money, and it's really determined by the agency where it goes. And they want the flexibility. So that's where that comes from for me. Yeah, and in our, in our agency, we don't, so they don't give the money, in, in, in our specific example, they don't give the money to me right away, right? So they'll earmark that in the future, they know they want to modernize. So, for instance, when we, when we modernize the case management system, uh, I chair an IT business council where all the executives are in the room, and we talk about what are the future needs of the agency. We identified several years ago that we wanted to modernize the, the case management system for the investigators. So they started working on budgeting to have money available to mod- – now, we didn't talk technology at all. We didn't talk technology till we knew that we had we, – the time came. We knew that we had the money that was budgeted. Then we came in and talked about, okay, what does it mean that we're going to modernize this, this case management system? But we just started with that concept and said, okay, we need to budget for these ideas, these business needs, and then get to the specific technology stuff when the time comes. You know what? what I'm sorry. You know what I found about that is that as soon as – even now, we know now what we might do in 21. All the everyone gets jazzed about it, and it starts immediately. So one of the things they say a lot in, is start now, and the way you start now is by talking about where you want to be two years from now, and then saying, but it, you know, it's going to take us a while to get there. And so people start finding ways to. I don't know if you've you've seen this, but they start finding ways to to prepare for that future. And sometimes by the time it comes, you're already. Uh, halfway there or all the way there. All right. So, but Gary, let me just jump in because I, I want to get to her second question, which is about CDOs. If you start the conversation with what are we trying to solve and how do we budget for it, how do you know what it's going to cost you? Because, again, you can't say give me $50 million and it only costs you $30 million. Right. I mean, that's a good news in some ways. Or give me $50 million, it costs me $150 million, and then you're way short. Right. So, so how do you balance, find that balance? You roll the chicken bones on the table. <laughs> and, uh, no, so, so I mean, you know, so the, the best that you can do, right, is, is you take your best guess, right? And you sit there and you have an honest conversation with the leadership and you go, look, you know, without, without really going through the requirements process and understanding everything that we're going to do, here's my best guess. Right? And sometimes you're over, sometimes you're under. That's reality. But if you've established with the executives uh, and the leadership to understand that you're being as honest as you can at that point in time, you know, then you deal with the overs and unders. That's, that's the, absolutely the Coming under is great, right? Always come under, right? If you've if you got a choice, always come under budget, right? Because they'll always find something else to spend money on, right? But when you come over, right, if you've had that honest conversation and you're showing progress and you're showing, you know, good faith effort and you're being completely transparent in your budget, you usually get a pass if, if you miss it. I mean, we're professionally, right, you get to a point you get pretty close, right? You don't, you don't usually miss the mark by, you know, 100% or 200%. So you get in the ballpark. If you've, if you've built that trust and foundation with the other executives, usually you're okay. And the CDO, let's talk about that question. Okay, chief data officer. So a chief data officer is a person who's responsible for a data strategy for the agency. So imagine, I'm going to use the example for, for creating a data strategy, creating a data, in, ensuring the agency has a data inventory. Officially, there was a law that came in June of this year, 19, that said uh, it's called the Federal Evidence-Based Policy something close to that. Making act, yeah. And what that says is that every agency has to have a chief data officer, a chief evidence officer, and a chief statistical officer. Something of those, those might not be the exact right titles. And that those three people have to work together to ensure certain things happen in the agency. I was the data captain before the law came out, and then I just, you know, we changed the name. But it's so important, you know, a lot of the artificial intelligence, a lot of the decision, 
are based on the data and the quality of the data that you have. So you put stupid IT on top of lots and lots of data, and it can make some pretty intelligent decisions. And so focusing on the technology, the technology is, in my mind, and people argue with me about this, but the technology that we need at the NSF is already there. So there's probably new technology that's needed, but it, it's not, I don't need it yet. But I do need good data to put this on. And the other thing is we, the federal government owes one of our products, one of the things that we're rich in is data. And so part of what this law says is you have to give it away. You have to make the data of your agency to the greatest extent possible available to the public. And that's an obligation. That's, a, that's a, uh, one of the things we as citizens owe. And so that, this is just a focus from the, the center, I think, on uh, making sure that happens. Okay, we have time for maybe one more. Hi, my, my name is Satish. I'm from HRSA under HHS. So you talked about the chief data officer and chief statistics or analytics officer position. So don't you, uh, there used to be, I mean, there is the chief technology officer position right now. How these roles integrate, and uh, I feel there is some, some sort of duplication between a CTO and a CDO and a CIO. So how, how do these roles integrate uh, for the best of the organization? I think every agency's solving the problem their own way. Many agencies believe the CIO, and I believe this too, the chief data officer and the CIO should not be linked because there's a natural tension between the technology and, and the data. But in, we just are too small to have that uh, happen. We're separate, but again, I, I agree that it's really the agencies need to define kind of the roles and responsibilities and, and the lanes that, that each of those people need to, need to play in and figure out how they're going to integrate, how they're going to coordinate. There's no, there's no one set answer. It's, it's impossible to define this in one set way. Dorothy, I have one last question here, but I could make the argument that because a CIO is chief information officer and a CDO is chief data officer, is there really a big difference between data and information? Now, people will say there is, but maybe not. All right, last question. Hi, my name is Shay Gonzalez. I'm with Department of Labor. I'm more interested in, um, with the IT modernization, what is your staff looks like now? Are you preparing to send your current staff to um, training to get the new skills? Are you primarily using contractors? What does uh, your vision of the workforce look like with this new direction we're going in? My staff, we're 60% contract, 40% FTE. We may, may slant that a little more toward the contractors in the future. Part of what we undertook was a, a serious education program for our FTEs to try to get them the, the new skills that they would need as they, as they made this transition. We started that at the very beginning of the process. Uh, as we started, and in fact, some of my folks went to training and didn't understand why am I doing this training. And I'm like, okay, ask me that question a year, a year and a half from now, and we'll we'll see what your answer is. So you have to invest in the training with your FTEs and with your contractors. You have to decide what route you're going to take, as far as you know, bringing in the right skill sets at the right time for the technologies and the and the things that you're deploying. But for your FTEs, you have to train your FTEs. There's no getting around. Doesn't mean you have to send everybody off to a million dollars worth of training. Uh, there's lots of training available and in, in lots of forms that that you know won't necessarily break the bank. But you have to invest in training your FTEs, or you're, or you're going to find yourself uh, struggling if you don't. Yes, agreed. FTE, so we're a mix also, exactly the same. And uh, I think the, the vision for the FTEs in our IT shop are that they have to be experts at contract management in addition to understanding the technology. So because a lot of the people that how to award a contract is a very important part of 
how to evaluate proposals. That's how you get your work. That's how they get their workforce. That's how a lot of the work is done. And so they do need to understand enough to, they do need to understand the technology and value the technology, but they're not technicians, at least in NSF. We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated at the Digital Government Institute's 930 Gov event. My guests on the panel were Dorothy Aronson, the CRO of the National Science Foundation, and Gary Bartlett, the CRO of the Postal Service's Inspector General's Office. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this part of the show, I sit down with Gary Bartlett, the Chief Information Officer at the Postal Service's IG office, and Dorothy Aronson, the CIO at the National Science Foundation. Both of you have been guests before, so welcome back. We just heard you guys on a panel at the 930Gov event, so let's continue the conversation a little bit. One item that was brought up during the discussion was the idea of getting your infrastructure, getting your network ready to use AI, to use bots, to use these kind of emerging technologies. Let me maybe start with Gary and ask a little bit about how you guys have been doing that over the last two, three, five years. The biggest thing is uh, as we started prepping and talking about this conversation of we want everything to be cloud-based, first thing we did was we started looking at we have 106 field offices scattered across the United States. Most of those field offices had very small, traditional circuits connected to them, T1s in in most cases. Well, that's not going to cut it when you come to talk about cloud technology and using a lot of these these new advancements in technology. So the first thing we did is we started from the ground up. So at the circuit level, we went back and we replaced all of the circuits that we had. Uh, We went to different internet providers in the local area and said, treat us like a small business. Give us a nice, uh, a nice internet pipe similar to what I might have in my house or a small business you know, downtown might have. And we replaced all those circuits with much bigger pipes. And then you just everything went up from there, right? Uh, replacing all your uh, uh, backbone infrastructures, migrating things out of data centers, getting yourself prepped and, and getting yourself in a position where you could take advantage of all these new technologies. And I think that that's core that you have to start there because if you try to jump straight in, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna fail. And is that why, the, for instance, you mentioned the AI pilot that you guys uh, started down that path with some of the case management. Is that why you're able to, you feel comfortable doing it now versus, you know, you, we've been talking about AI for a couple of years now. One of the big things is uh, that we have found is once you get yourself in a position where you're in the cloud, there's just a lot more technology that's available to you much easier, much cheaper, right? You don't have to build everything from scratch. You don't have to host everything yourself. And there's a lot of things that are already built and ready-made for you, and all you have to do is hook into them and apply them. So now that now that we've got ourselves positioned in such a way that we can actually now start to take advantage of those things, um, I think that's now why we're, we're kind of taking that next evolutionary step in our, in our modernization. Dorothy, let me move over to you. You and I have talked before about National Science Foundation and kind of you guys' modernization effort. Did you have to, similar to what you heard from Gary, wait until kind of certain pieces were in place? Or at the same time, you guys have been, as you said, modernizing for the last seven years as well? When we started modernizing, we started from the inside out. And uh, we were able to do that because... In the beginning, we didn't have customer the customers organized and giving us specific requirements. So while we were we were doing sort of two things at once, for the first few years, we were building governance. We were building ways to hear from the customers. What we were spending our budget on, however, was the things we didn't need to hear from the customers on. And so at a certain point, we, were, we had our infrastructure ready so that the customer-facing uh, parts of the, of the systems could be uh, focused on then, and the, we had a solid infrastructure to work from. We still are working to modernize certain things that are very heavy lift, like, for example, um, our database infrastructure. Until we, we cannot yet move our database uh, to the cloud, but we're working inch by inch to get that 
uh, while at this point while we're modernizing customer facing utilities. You just mentioned also that you have been named the CDO for NSF, so that helps you with that. Hopefully, that side of the, the challenge of, of the data side. What are you doing to get that infrastructure, data infrastructure in place? We've been working for the past few months assembling customers from outside all around the agency who have an interest in data, and it's amazing how much more quickly governance over data came together than over IT. People really understand that they're working with information every day and that they have all kinds of vast desires, you know, diverse desires about how to make things better. And what we found was uh, everybody working in isolation were doing similar kinds of things. Bringing them together was very empowering. So at first what we did was we brought just people together and we said, okay, do you wish that we had an inventory of the data? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got people without any additional FTE or it was free to the agency because people were already worried about this and they benefited right away by sharing the information that each other had. Gary, when you look at your next steps of IT modernization to further use, whether it's bots or AI or whatever the next great technology is, quantum computing, where are you guys going next? What are are the next kind of focus areas for IT modernization? Yeah, so for us, a couple of big things. In fact, you just touched on the the data part of it, right, is not just how to manage the data, storing the data, making it readily accessible. That's, that's, I know that that's going to be a big lift for us over the next couple of years and building a, uh, we refer to it as lovingly as Bill, our our business intelligence library. So a central data warehouse where it's uh, documented, it's cataloged. It's you know readily accessible to the individual user, right? Data can't just be to, for the IT people. That's really a big focus we're having right now, is because it's artificial intelligence is great, and we're really pressing hard on that area. But it's the data, making that data available to people, and how to make it accessible to the average worker, right? And not just to some IT person sitting in their cubicle in their in their CIO shop. But getting that data accessible into the fingertips of the people that are doing the work and making decisions, that's a big focus for us in the future. The reason why we know each other, the reason why I've got, got uh, you were exposed to us at Federal News Network, if you will, is because you guys have a great data team already. I think your CAPE team, I think you call it, different than the DOD CAPE team. That's the same data, but you're just trying to make the data even better because you guys have already been doing some pretty good job with predictive analytics and such. Yeah, so now it's, it's kind of taking that to the next step, right, is taking, the, taking our analytics team um, and enabling them to, instead of kind of doing things in silos, uh, which in the past, you know, they would, they would attack a specific business problem. They would get the data for that specific business problem. Now we're talking about creating a data, a data mart, if you were, uh, you know, a, a place where data is accessible for them to start solving problems that they may not even thought about solving yet. Uh, and not having them spend a lot of time trying to prep the data, trying to find out what data is available, but now kind of kind of skipping that step for them and having that already in place so that they can then just start to attack the actual business problem itself. And Dorothy, let me shift to you. Same same kind of question, which as you kind of move down this path of IT modernization, we know it's a journey. Where are some of the next kind of focus areas for you? So I agree that data literacy uh, is the most important thing that we have to work on. Data literacy for me is everyone in the agency feeling comfortable using information. And, and I think, you know, we're doing something now at NSF called a Udacity experiment, and it's actually funded by the CIO Council. And what it did was we asked people, Udacity is a vendor that provides online training in various technologies, but we selected uh, data analytics and data science, and we um, are now 
uh, doing an experiment to see how quickly people can uh, upskill. But that only provides, I think of the data scientists and maybe the data analysts as sort of brain surgeons. We all need to be able to put on a Band-Aid. So I think that my real challenge now is to figure out how to, I, I don't like the word train, but how to help everyone understand how to be a data-driven decision maker. One of the things about the data-driven decision maker that you bring up is the CIO's role is really changing. We've been talking about the role of the CIO now probably since Klinger Cohen, 1994. Here we are 25-plus years later. Give me a sense, uh, you know, maybe start with Gary a little bit about how your role as a CIO is changing from someone who's focused on you know, technology, where technology is maybe less prevalent, but your, the business side kind of comes into play. So it's interesting because when I first started out, it was all about the technology, right? You know, what product am I going to buy? What piece of, you know, what box am I going to use? You know, now it's more about the business itself, right? All the business, you look around at the business needs, the business processes, you know, it's really about understanding what your customers need, uh, where they're going, what challenges are they facing, and then figuring out what solutions you can provide. And a lot of times that's not about the technology itself. It's more about the processes, the application of technology, uh, the ability to put power in the hands of your customers. You know, back in the day, IT, you know, if you wanted something, you came to IT and IT decided when and where and how it was done. Now it's, you know, just enabling your customers to decide when and where and how it's done and, and, and empowering them to do that. And that's a, that's a significant shift for a lot of IT people who are used to always having their hands on the keyboard and being in control and relinquishing that control more back to your customer base. That's a big shift, I think, for, for a, lot of, uh, a lot of IT folks and that CIOs need to be making. And that's why standards and the guardrails, if you will, setting those guidelines are so important and to keep people, okay, play within the sandbox and you're good to go. Is, is that what you've tried to do? Exactly. You know, and, and even setting things up like, you know, hey, here's as I, you know, when I talked about having, you know, central repositories of data, people start to, to get worried and go, oh, what if somebody sees something they're not supposed to see? Okay, well, I'll take care of that. I'll ensure that the right people have the right access to the right data, but I'm not going to tell you how to use the data that you're allowed to have access to. So like you say, you know, setting up those boundaries that they have to operate in, but not having those lanes so confined that they can't operate at all. And Dorothy, you're, you're we'll call you a relatively new CIO, though I think you've been involved in the CIO community for a while based on your other jobs at NSF. What are you seeing or how how, how, is, how have you seen kind of this role as, as the IT person, as the head executive change? I definitely have seen the tr- tendency to move away from being the czar of IT uh, versus being the, the service provider to the agency. And I agree. I think that what we've done is we're liberating these skills and these tools and so that in the future, the IT staff will have very important roles that only IT staff can do, but they will be invisible roles. That the things that people will see they'll and, and manage, the, even the interfaces will be in their own hands. And so imagining that future is not always easy for IT professionals. And so, you, you know, we all have to go through, through these evolutions in order to empower uh, everyone. This has been a great conversation. So let me first thank my guest, Dorothy Aronson, the National Science Foundation CIO. Dorothy, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. And Gary Bartlett, the U.S. Postal Services and Office of Inspector General CIO. Gary, thank you. No, thanks for having me. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.